Let's remain standing and let's pray again, okay? Well, Father, what a joy to sing the gospel and uh, what a wonderful reminder that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Father, as we open our Bibles and apply ourselves to the study of the word, we'll count on your Holy Spirit to teach us, to challenge us, and to change us. This we pray in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Some of you have heard me tell a little story about the three guys who went deer hunting. Um, one was a doctor, one was a lawyer, and one was a pastor. And they hunted all morning. They didn't see anything. And so they come out by their truck. They're getting some sandwiches and leaning against the truck talking and Lo and behold, down in the brush below them, a nice big buck walks out, and they all grab their rifles, and they all shoot at the same time. The buck goes down, and they walk down there, and they begin to argue about whose buck it is, who killed it. Part of the problem is there's only one bullet hole. So they're talking about all the reasons why they're the ones who got it, and while they're arguing, the DNR officer walks up, and he says, what's going on, fellas? And they explain to him that they had a little bit of a dilemma that they had shot this buck, and all three had shot at the same time. They didn't know who had gotten it, but they all thought they had gotten it. And he said, well, let me take a look. He said, I'll figure it out. He walks down. He takes a look for a few minutes. He turns around. He says, sure, I know who shot it. And they said, now, how do you know who shot it? He said, I'll tell you why. He said, it was only shot by one bullet, and the bullet went in one ear and out the other. It was the preacher who shot it, he said. (laughs) And you think that's funny, don't you? But as I invite you to Hebrews chapter 2... I want you to know that our text this morning is about that very thing, about not paying attention to the Word of God. There's a warning in this passage today, and it's Hebrews chapter 2. We are in our third Sunday in our study of this um, most remarkable epistle. It's not an easy epistle, and um, as you're going to see in our study today, it is written even in sort of a complex way with long sentences, and we have to kind of root around and dig to get the meaning of the passage Our text for this morning out of Hebrews chapter 2 is just verses 1 through 4. Chris recited the entire passage for us, and we'll have a couple more messages out of chapter 2. But let's reread verses 1 through 4 as our text this morning. As you position your notes and your pencils, if you use them, I think you'll find them helpful with this passage today to use the notes. The writer says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will, Sentence ends with a question mark. He's asking a question. We'll stop right there. We want to we root around in these four verses and understand exactly what the writer's talking about. I thought it would be helpful for us, before we go anywhere with this message, is to just stop and make a few observations. There are many observations, but I wanted to make four observations about this text. The first one is that you need to know, and it's not, it's not apparent by just the text itself, but you need to know as we study the book of Hebrews that this is the first of five warning passages. There are five specific warning passages in the book of Hebrews. 
When we see them, we want to listen closely because they are warning us of a danger. What's remarkable is, is that the warning to these readers, to the recipients of this letter 2,000 years ago is as relevant today as the day it was written. The church today needs to hear these warnings. So first, this is the first of five warnings. Secondly, I want to remind you of something that you know, but it is this. Know that in the original epistle, when this was written in a letter form to this group of believers, so it was an unknown writer, a godly man, an eyewitness to the ministry of Christ, we don't know who it was, writing to a group of Jewish believers, we don't even know where they lived, but they were enduring difficult time, and he's writing to encourage them, and he's writing to them because he wants them not to give up their faith and return to Judaism or to, to capitulate and to yield over to the pressure of the day to not follow Christ because of the persecution of Christians that is beginning now from the Romans, all right, at this time. This is the time of the Colosseums and the catacombs, Christians being eaten by lions. That's just beginning when he would have written this letter. So as they receive this letter, what we need to remind ourselves of, second observation, is that, that there were no chapter or verse markings. There was no chapter breaks. And so what you need to understand is that verses 1 through 4, ongoing into chapter 2, is a continuation of the thought that was begun in chapter 1. So don't let it fool you that though a new chapter started, he's still arguing and building on his logic of the first chapter. The recipients, as they read the letter, would have understood this. In fact, that's what the word therefore is there for. Therefore, you see, he's been writing about, and by the way, let's have a little quiz from last week. What did we say chapter 1 is all about? How can you capture chapter 1 and the teaching of chapter 1? Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the angels. That's all of chapter 1. You see, these Jewish believers were were very infatuated by angels. They thought very highly. They knew that angels were special. They knew that angels were spiritual. They began to even elevate angels above Christ. And he begins his letter by challenging them to know that Jesus is greater even than the angels. That's a very important thought to keep in mind as he rolls into our chapter 2, continuing the letter to these Jewish believers. It's as though we're reading someone else's mail. He's still going to talk about angels. Right? So number one, this is the first of five warning passages. Number two, there's no chapter and verse break, so this is a continuation of the thought. Number three, I'll show you when we get there, but I want to tell you up front that I don't want you to miss a writing technique that the writer's going to use here, and it's a logic. He's going to write to them arguing from a, a lesser to a greater. He's going he's to write about a weaker argument about this matter that he's talking to them about. I'll explain it to you. And, he, and his point is that if this weaker matter is true, if this is true at a lesser level, how much more so then is it, does it matter at the stronger level? So it's a similar thought at the weaker to the stronger argument. Okay, so it's an argument, not argument as in fighting, but in laying down his logic. Okay, so I'll point that out to you. I just wanted to give you a heads up that that's coming and that will help you understand the point of this passage. Number four, I thought it was important for us to state the obvious and that is that when we read this passage, we understand 
that it is possible to drift spiritually. It is possible for us to drift spiritually. I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ today. I don't know if you can look back in your time of walking with Christ since you've come to know Christ, and what it would look like to put it on a bar graph. Have you been up and down? And, or maybe it's just one long descending fade away, and maybe you haven't even thought about that. It is possible to drift spiritually, and sometimes we don't even know it. Well, let's dig into our text. The first thing I want you to see about our text is that it begins with a challenge. It begins with a challenge. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. There's the challenge right there, the first part of that sentence. He's calling them to give earnest, earnest means intense, right? Very serious, heed, I want you to give earnest heed to the things that you have heard. Now, we don't really talk like that. If you wanted to get your kids' attention, they haven't been paying attention to you, and you want them to get you to do some, you want to get them to do some things that they ought to do, you say, come here, look me in the eye, I want you to give me more earnest heed right now. They kind of look at us cross-eyed. Now, the NIV translates it, pay careful attention. That's what that means. And so that's the challenge that the writer is giving to these Hebrew believers, and he's giving to the church today. When you hear the Word of God, that's what he's talking about, the Word We've taught you the word, we've discipled you, we've preached to you, we want you to pay careful attention. That's the challenge because there's, that then is followed by a warning. Look what it says. There's a warning, the end of verse 1, lest we drift away. So there's the challenge with the warning. We want you to pay attention to the word lest you drift away. Away. He's very concerned, the writer is, that these believers not depart from what they've once been in following Christ. Now, you'll recall that they are being pulled back to Judaism and the law and the Old Testament. They're under the new covenant now, and it was hard for them to give that up. Throw in the persecution of Christians that's going on from the political unrest of the day, and you've got a recipe for giving up. And he just reminds them, it's easy for you to drift. Don't drift away from this great salvation. Let's take a look at this warning. The warning is that they not drift away. The first thing I want you to see about the warning is that it's a word picture, isn't it? It's a word picture from the nautical world. The idea of drift is like that of a boat whose anchor is slipping. I grew up in Michigan. We used to have a little tin boat. It's actually here in West Virginia behind my shed right now. And my dad had this little aluminum boat, and we'd put it out in the little lake where my dad lived. And we would, especially maybe in the spring, uh, we would find a spot where the sunnies or the bluegills were bedding, and we would fish, and we'd have a good spot. And we used to use an anchor. If we didn't have a good one, we'd find a piece of cement block or something in the lakes up there because there wasn't any current. Sometimes the breeze could blow you. But if we didn't have a good enough anchor, and we were fishing, man, we're starting to bite. Fish are biting. We're getting them. Next thing you know, our biting, it's not, and we look up and we realize based on the big old willow tree, well, we used to be right out in front of that willow tree. Now we have, the wind has drifted us down. And the idea is, that's the picture here, of a boat that has drifted, the wind has blown it, or its anchor has slipped in a river with current, that's going to happen. 
And the anchor just pulls along, drags along the bottom, and it's not holding. Doesn't happen quickly. You don't even realize it at first, but you're not where you used to be. You have moved. You have drifted. And the author is using a word picture like a boat whose anchor is slipping. Secondly, I believe that this is a wake-up call to believers. It's a wake-up call to believers. I believe, in fact, that Hebrews, by and large, was written specifically to believers for believers. I don't believe he's talking about unsaved people who need to not reject the gospel. I believe he's talking about people who have entered into a relationship with Christ They've understood that Jesus died on the cross for them. They've accepted his free gift of salvation. And then very gradually, by not paying attention to the word, you notice that they were to give earnest heed to the word. By not paying attention to the word or becoming becoming bored with the word or, or just not showing up where the word is, they gradually began, like a boat with a dragging anchor, to drift away from their sincere and pure and solid faith in Christ. I think it's written to believers, and there's lots of evidence in the book, but let me just show you by letting your eyes go down to verse 3, for example. Notice that the writer of the letter includes himself in this warning challenge, in the challenge and the warning. He says in verse 3, how shall, look at the pronoun he uses, how shall we escape? How shall, he's including himself. He's not talking to a group of people who are outside of Christ. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the group of believers. And the writer, the author, is including himself. How shall we escape? And so the author is including himself. Secondly, then he goes on to say in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I mean, the idea there is that they already possess this salvation. They are in Christ. They have begun to grow in Christ, and now... They are neglecting something that they have. You can't neglect something that you don't have. And in fact, if he was talking to non-believers, he would warn them about rejecting the truth, not neglecting. They don't have a non-believer or someone outside of Christ doesn't have the gospel. They don't have the word of truth, and so they can reject it. But these believers already have it, and they're not paying attention, and they are gradually drifting away. And he says, do not neglect You cannot neglect something that you don't have. I want to remind you then, too, that this is about the Word. We've kind of emphasized that already. Letter C, Roman numeral 2, under the warning. Not only is it a word picture and a wake-up call, but it's about the Word. Notice what he says. You need to take heed, earnest heed, pay attention to the things that we have heard. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other you got to pay attention. And this is the word that was spoken to you. You need to get it. You need to get it. And so it's about the word, the things we have heard. Let's talk just a little bit about drift for a moment and just make note of some observations about drifting since that's the word picture that this passage is built upon. A few thoughts about drift. Number one, drift, by definition, is a slow process, isn't it? It's a slow process. In fact, it's so slow that sometimes you don't even realize it's happening. So I want to encourage you to be very careful as we enter the message today. Sometimes we do this. We sit down. We get the topic. We see the title, the text, and we say to ourselves, okay, PV's preaching about spiritual drift today. I'm really glad I don't have a problem with that. I'm really on fire for Jesus, you know. And we think, 
I don't, I don't really need this. I, I got this. You've got to be really careful because drift, by definition, is very slow. And in fact, sometimes we are drifting and we don't even know it. Secondly, I want you to know that this idea of drift is something that is basically unintentional and is often caused by carelessness. It's unintentional and caused by carelessness. It's not necessarily the thing that somebody wakes up to reject. That's number three. It is not the same as a decision to disown or reject. To disown or reject. You don't wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say to yourself, yeah, today's the day that I'm going to start drifting away from Jesus. Today's the day that I'm going to just kind of begin to drift away in my commitment to the Word. Today's the day that I'm going to start becoming bored by the Bible. That's not what we do. Now, people will reject on a given day. People will come to a place of frustration in their faith with Christ, and they will reject Him. That's kind of a point in time. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about something that is so slow and so gradual, often by carelessness, often without them realizing it, that they have begun to move away from where they once were. Fourthly, and this is kind of the given reminder of the passage, is that it is something to which everyone is vulnerable. I think all of us are vulnerable. Don't think that it cannot happen to you. It can happen to any of us. So just a couple of thoughts on drift there. As we heed the warning, this idea of a nautical word picture of a boat drifting so gradually they don't even realize it. The next thing I want you to see in the passage is a reminder. Number three is a reminder, and this is the beginning of the logical sequence that the writer's going to use arguing from the weaker to the stronger or the lesser to the greater. If it's true at this point, then I want to show you it's that much more true over here. Okay? So this is where it begins. Now, he writes in a way that we don't necessarily write. It's a long sentence, and I want you to notice that verse 2 begins a sentence, and it's a question. Okay? That's Roman numeral 4 is a question. We're going to see that. But look at the beginning of verse 2, and what he's really doing is writing about something that in the mind of these Jewish believers, they would have followed with him. They knew their Old Testament well, and they would have understood exactly what he was doing. We are American, secularized, Gentile believers, and we don't think the way these Jewish believers would have thought. We don't even understand our Old Testament the way they understood their Old Testament. They knew every detail of it. So look what he says, verse 2. For if the word... Okay, so we're talking about the word again here, that you don't let go in one ear and out the other. For if the word spoken through the angels, what in the world is that, proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, comma, sentence isn't over, but let's stop there and let's take in the reminder. He's, he's beginning his logical sequence or his argument and this is the weaker part of the argument. He's going to start down here. Okay? Now, you have to take in the word if. The word if. That's the clue. If. If what? If it's true. Okay? That goes without saying. Look at, your, look at your text. For if it's true that the word spoken through angels. He's talking about angels again. And he has already spent the whole first chapter showing them 
that who's greater than the angels? Christ. Christ is greater than the angels. But they loved angels and they knew that angels were very spiritual. And this is one of the very reasons why they knew that angels were very important. If the word spoken through angels proved steadfast or binding or reliable, that's what that means. Now we stop and we say to ourselves something we've never thought of before. What is he talking about? The word given by angels. I don't get that. So let's do a quick Bible study and let's understand what his readers would have understood with the first time they heard it. They would have understood exactly what he was talking about. The way to do this is to turn to Acts chapter 7. So turn back in your New Testament, just a few pages, to Acts chapter 7. Now when you get to Acts chapter 7, let me remind you what this is about. This is the section where Stephen, the very first martyr of the church, is preaching. It's an interesting message. If you ever read it and you're reading through your Bible, you know that this is a long chapter. Why? Because Stephen is preaching a message that is basically covering the entire course of the history of Israel. And why is he doing that? Why is Stephen preaching with this historical review of the, of the whole history of Israel. What he's doing is he's showing them that out of Israel, from the Jewish people, from the beginning, it was God's plan to bring the Messiah. And he starts way back, and he's walking them through their own history. Keep in mind that the listeners here would have been very familiar with their history as well. Now, we're using this as an example, and we're going to cut right into A, a message, and B, right into the middle of a sentence in the message, to show ourselves, we're educating ourselves right now, about what is the word given by angels. What is that? Stephen talks about it. Look in verse, uh, verse 38. Acts 7, verse 38. Let's actually pick it up with verse 37. Remember, Stephen's given a whole review of the history of Israel, and he's talking about Moses, the recipient of the law that they knew and they loved. There was no prophet greater than Moses. This is that Moses. Stephen's this is, And by the way, this is just like five minutes before Stephen's going to get his brains bashed out. And remember that Saul of Tarsus is here holding their coats and giving approval. So verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, quote, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. He's talking about Jesus. Moses gave this prophecy that out of their people, Jesus the Messiah would come, a prophet greater than he, and you shall listen to him, you shall hear him. This is he who was in, in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. There it is. Look, the angel who spoke to him, that's Moses, when he got the law on Mount Sinai. Now, we never thought about that before. We know the story of Moses going up on Mount Sinai and God gives him the law. By that time, when he comes down, the people are in such sin and revelry, he bashes them and breaks the tablet. God gives him a second tablet. If we took the time to turn to Deuteronomy 22, there... It implies that there were thousands of angels present at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. But Stephen's not done. He references this again. Look at chapter 7 now and let your eyes go to verse 53. Okay, so we're just, we're trying to 
understand what the writer of Hebrews meant when he told the people that he was writing the word given by angels. So far, we understand from Stephen that angels somehow facilitated the giving of the law to Moses. Now look at verse 53. Same sermon, Stephen still preaching, and we're cutting right into the middle of a sentence. Who have received the law by the direction of angels and not kept it. He's talking about their forefathers persecuting prophets and so forth, and they had received the law through the angels, but then they didn't even keep it. He's, what he's doing is he's showing them that, that Jesus is the Messiah and that they are guilty sinners in his presence. But he says the angels gave the law. Now, turn to Galatians. We're still working on this, okay? Galatians chapter 3. We're almost done doing a little research here. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with, uh, look at verse 19. Now, keep in mind that Saul of Tarsus would have heard with his own ears the sermon that Stephen preached where Stephen talked about angels that gave the law to Moses. Now, we don't even think like that. Paul, Saul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees and knew his Old Testament, would have understood exactly what Stephen was talking about when he said it. Just like the Hebrew recipients of the letter to the Hebrews would have understood their Old Testament. And they would have understood exactly, oh yeah, the angels were there giving the law to Moses. Now Paul says this in Galatians 3 verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? Okay, by the way, parentheses, stop a minute. It is interesting that Galatians, of all of Paul's epistles, is actually very similar to this epistle to the Hebrews, whom we don't know wrote, because the Galatian believers were were trying to do a very similar thing that the Hebrew believers were doing. They had been saved out of Judaism, the keeping of the law, the feasts, the the temple and the tabernacle worship, and, and the holidays, and then they come to Christ. Old covenant, now they're under the new covenant, and the blood of Christ cleanses them from all sin once and for all. They don't need the blood of bulls and goats. But the Galatian believers were bewitched, remember, and they were getting called back into Judaism. And it's very similar to the concept of what we have in Hebrews, where they're wanting to return to Judaism and forsake their sincere, pure devotion to Christ and Christ alone, the finished work on the cross. So in In Galatians 3, he's talking about the law, what the purpose of the law is, how Christ fulfills the law, and how Christ is greater than the law, and how the law can't save. And in verse verse 19, look what he says. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed, capital S, that's Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. What was, the law was appointed through angels, through a mediator, Moses. All right, that's enough of that. The point is what? The point is that the word given by angels is representative of the old covenant and the law of Moses. So we don't really know exactly how But somehow, angels were involved in the giving of the law to Moses. The Bible doesn't make that clear. We can turn back to Hebrews 2 now. Turn back to Hebrews 2. So you say, well, 
Well, PV, how, what did the angels do? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us enough. That's almost all it says. But in the Jewish mind, they understood at a high level from their rabbinic teaching that the angels were there and facilitated the giving of the law. Okay, so now we're back at chapter 2, and this is a reminder. It's a reminder to the Hebrew believers. Okay, Hebrews chapter 2, for if the word spoken through angels, that is the old covenant, the law of Moses, facilitated by angels, given by angels to Moses, if that law proved steadfast, stable, binding, reliable, if the angels gave the old covenant and the law to Moses, and it was a good word, and even every violation, transgression, and disobedience of that law given by angels received a just reward. Okay, you see what he's doing? That's his weaker argument. There was a word given by angels, and it was a binding word. And when people violated that word, they were disciplined. Now, what's that all about? Let's illustrate that from the Old Testament as well. Okay, so back to our outline. This is a reminder. The word was given by angels. But even that word, letter B, the word ignored and disobeyed, brought consequence, letter C, and disobedience. That brought consequence when it was disobeyed. Okay, so let's look at Numbers chapter 15, and let me show you once a little bit more nuance here. Okay, Numbers chapter 15, beginning with verse 32. Now, there are many illustrations that we could use right now about how when the Old Testament law was violated, there was a consequence. And it mattered. And people were disciplined for their disobedience of the law. I want to show you a story that I don't, I'm going to guess most of you do not remember this story. Most of you have never heard this story before. I picked it out for that reason. And it's Numbers chapter 15. And I wanted to give right at this point in the message another shameless plug to be here for Numbers this Saturday to study the interesting, unusual often overlooked book of numbers with Dr. Jim Shupey. You'll be glad you did. Nine o'clock this Saturday morning. Okay, now here's the story, all right? What we're illustrating in Numbers 15 is that the word given to Moses by the angels, that that word was so serious that when it was violated, people were disciplined. So it really mattered. That word really mattered, okay? November, November. Numbers chapter 15. I think this is February still. Numbers chapter 15 and begin with verse 32 and notice this story. It is crazy. This is crazy. Now, while the children of Israel, verse 32, were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Everybody go, ooh, ooh, sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, and they put him under guard. Ooh. So here's this old man. He's at the camp, and it's the Sabbath, and he, I think what happens is he saw some really good sticks. You ever go to start a fire, and you're looking for dry sticks, and you find a spot where there's really good sticks under this tree. I'm going to get these sticks. He gets these sticks. I'm going to get these sticks. He's walking. I don't know. He sees them out there, and it's the Sabbath, and, and he decides, these are good sticks. I can light my coffee fire in the morning with them. And so he gets the sticks, and it's Sabbath. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he didn't just 
remember. I mean, the law hadn't been given very long. It was brand new. In fact, the law was so new that Moses hadn't even taught them in the fullest part or to the fullest extent the consequences of the law. Let's continue reading. And those who found him, verse 33, gathering sticks, brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, and they put him under guard. They tied the guy up because if it had, because it had not been explained what should be done to him. And then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. You're kidding me. You're kidding me. He's just picking up sticks. It's a big deal. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and they stoned him with stones and he died. It's unbelievable. It's a big deal. What is that all about? We're back in Hebrews chapter 2. It's what he's illustrating. Look what he says, Hebrews chapter 2. He says, this word given by angels to Moses, the old covenant, the law, proved steadfast to the degree that every transgression and disobedience received its just reward. So you think, what's the big deal about picking up sticks? There's no big deal about picking up sticks. Here's the big deal. God said, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, and don't violate it. And he violated the character and the obedience of God. He he did not pay attention to the word of God. That's the point. You think it's serious to pick up sticks. It's serious if God says don't pick up sticks. That's why. Because the word of God matters. That's what he says. You better not let the word go in one ear and out the other. You better give earnest heed to the things that we have heard. That's the, I think right now would be a really good time to sing a song like Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me that once was lost but now I'm found, or whatever the rest of the words are. I was blind but now I see. I mean, do you appreciate not being under the old covenant? Do you appreciate what Jesus did for you? You appreciate that he came in and he interrupted the law? And he presented a new word to us. There is a new message. It's called the gospel. It's the whole point of this passage. Let's continue. That is the lesser argument. Okay? Start verse 2 again. Remember now that it's a question. So the point of this passage. By the way, 1 Corinthians 10 verses 5 through 10 are more illustrations of how the when the law was violated, there was consequence. Paul gives the Corinthian believers numerous illustrations of this. One of them is Exodus 32, when, the, when Moses and Joshua were up on the mountain receiving the law, and Aaron built the, made the golden calf by collecting the jewelry of the Israelites. They come down, and they're naked and dancing and idolatering, worshiping an idol. And Moses grinds the, burns it in the fire, grinds it up, makes them drink it, tells the sons of Levi, get your sword out, and they kill 3,000 men. That is a further illustration of the word that came through angels to Moses. You think that's an important word, don't you? It is an important word. That's his whole point. Look at the point. 
though the word, the law, was given through angels, it was absolutely binding. Okay? So here he's establishing a, a plateau. It's an important word. It's a binding word. There was consequence for disobeying that word. But he's not done. We're only halfway through a long sentence. Look what he says. Let's start verse 2 again and understand what we've learned. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, binding is the word the NIV uses right there, and every transgression or disobedience of it received a just reward, verse 3, continuing the sentence, but now Roman numeral 4 in our outline, a question. Focus on the question of the sentence. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. I'm having trouble lifting at the end of the sentence for the question. It's such a long, long sentence. This is the point, okay? So he's given them a reminder. The word came through angels. That's old covenant. That's the law. But question... Now the stronger and the greater argument. How shall we escape? If they didn't escape discipline when they violated the law, how shall we escape if we violate or disregard or drift away from our great salvation? He's not talking about losing their salvation. He's talking about believers that God would discipline for disregarding living in carnality. So, Why is it so great, this salvation? Why is it greater than what the angels... Why is this word... Look what he says, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, not spoken by angels, but it first began to be spoken by the Lord? Why is it so great, greater than what the angels delivered? Letter A, Roman numeral 4. First and foremost, because it was spoken by the Lord himself. Okay, now... Connect the message last week with this text. Take away the chapter breaks. Take away chapter 2. Continue the logical flow. Why are you all following and thinking about angels? Angels are not as great as Christ. To which of the angels did God ever say, today you'll be my son, today I'll be your father? He never said that to an angel. That's what he's been writing to them in all of chapter 1. Christ is greater. Christ is supreme. Christ is greater. Now, even if there was a word that was given by angels, and there was, and it was a consequential word, how much greater is the word given by the Lord? We have a stronger argument. We have a stronger word. Because remember what their problem was. They were drifting away from their commitment to Christ, and they wanted to go back to the law. So what you have here is the old covenant and the new covenant hitting head to head. Question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Why is this such a great salvation and greater than what the angels, this word? Because letter A, it was spoken by the Lord himself. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus begins his public ministry. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's somebody who's greater than Moses. It's Jesus. Remember when Jesus is sitting down in the temple? And he's reading from Isaiah's scroll. He rolls it back up and he says, today these words are fulfilled in your presence. I'm the Messiah. They, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to push him off a cliff. He's like, he told them over and over, my word is greater than Moses' word. I am the one who fulfills 
the word that was facilitated by angels. And it's a greater word. It's the gospel. So the gospel trumps the law. And it was confirmed then by eyewitnesses. How shall we escape then, verse 3, if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? It's a great word because A, it comes from the mouth of the Lord himself. And B, it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. You think this isn't a credible word? Well, we're telling you we heard it from the Lord's mouth himself. It's for real. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 in your Bibles. Just turn to your right a little bit towards the back of your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. And look what Peter says. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. It's about 10 pages away from Hebrews to the right. 2 Peter chapter 1 and look at verse 16. Peter writes, For we, talking about himself and the disciples, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Then Peter's saying, I saw him walk on water. I saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. I saw him heal a blind man. I was there. I saw it. I saw his majesty. Even maybe the idea of reflecting on the, um, the, when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw his glory. I saw him. I didn't make this stuff up. This isn't cunningly devised fables. But we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So, so this message that the Hebrew the writer of Hebrews is giving to the Hebrew believers is a stronger message than that given by angels because A, it comes from the mouth of the Lord, and B, it was affirmed by the eyewitnesses. You say, what's the big deal with that? I'll tell you what that is. I've, I've used this illustration before. Janet and I love to go to historical places. And somewhere along the line on one of our trips, or usually around our anniversary time, we found our way down in Orange, Virginia, somewhere down there, and uh, Mount Pelier or something, uh, the home of James Madison, pretty sure. There's his home, and it was his father's home, and, and there he had his library, and he was one of the brainiacs of, of the Constitution and the, uh, the documents upon which our liberties today, the, the, even to this day, are founded. George Washington depended very heavily upon him for thinking and helping him at the Constitutional con- at the Convention in Philadelphia later. And we walk in, and we're visiting this place, and here's the home of James Madison. It's a beautiful home, and it has a big foyer into a big open room off to the side where which dining rooms and other fireplace rooms, but this big room, high ceiling, beautiful wallpaper, and many framed pictures and mirrors, as I recall, and pedestals with pots and peacock feathers, and, and the guide lady is telling us, now, this is exactly the way it was, even the wallpaper print, when James Madison lived here. And she said, now, that picture up there and that mirror over there and that spot right there, we're not sure about. But everything else has been replicated, and I think there was even a couple originals, and, and, and everything has been replicated, and it's exactly the way he said it. Somebody says, well, how do you know? How do you know it was for real? Why do you know that? Oh, she says. We have a letter. We have letters 
from, and I can't remember who it was, like a, a niece or a cousin, a girl who'd come and had lived there for weeks, maybe even months at a time. And while she was there, she had written her mother or her, her aunt or someone, and she had described in great detail all about the house, the wallpaper print, if I remember correctly, even like making sketches of things and describing in vivid detail exactly the way this was and exactly the way it looked. And so she said, so we know because she lived here, she saw it herself, and she described it, and that's when I wanted to interrupt and say, bah, you can't trust that. Because that's what people do with our Bible all the time. I mean, 200 years ago, somebody lived in the house, wrote it down as an eyewitness, and everybody believes it. And you know what? It's true. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about here. It's exactly what the, writers of Hebrews is, the writer of Hebrews is saying. Saying, this word is even greater than the word given by angels to Moses under the old covenant because this new covenant word, this gospel, comes directly from the lips of our Lord Jesus and it was amplified and written down by those who heard it with their own ears and they were eyewitnesses. And further, he said, it was confirmed with signs and wonders and miracles and spiritual gifts. But he says... How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness. God himself bore witness with these things, with these wonderful signs. And I gave you verses, just a couple. There are all kinds of them. But in Acts 2 and 5 and 6 and 8, you can look up incidences of these miracles and these awe-inspiring gifts that they had and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he did it according to his own will. So if you think that word is great, what about... So don't give up. Don't go back to the old covenant because we have a greater word and that word is from Jesus himself. What he's talking about, the point is that the word, the law given through angels is binding Then how much more the word, the gospel given through Christ himself. You see? So we have the privilege of holding a greater word in our hand the word given by the Lord Jesus, it's, it's the foundation of our salvation. It's not based on the law, it's based on the words of Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anybody believe in me, you'll be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Peter preaching said, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. This Jesus, it's a greater word than the word of angels. And you're going to tell me you're bored by your Bible? You're going to tell me that this salvation, this great salvation in Christ has just become ho-hum to you? I don't know. I don't think I'm getting up and going this morning. I don't know. Who cares? And you're in your boat, and you've been drifting, and you don't even know it. And where are you drifting? You're drifting away from this wonderful Lord Jesus. And you think there's not a consequence to that? There will be. Even in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 11, people who were partaking of the Lord's table inappropriately, believers in the Lord Christ, got sick and died because of their sin. Ananias and Sapphira, believers in Christ, zapped dead as an example to the church. God means what he says. And this gospel, it is a greater word. What do we conclude here? 
I think one is that it is so important for us to keep the Word of God a priority. Keep the Word of God a priority. Isn't that what he's talking about here? Don't let it go in one ear and out the other. We must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard. Make sure you're thinking about the Word. Number two, it is vital to be alert to spiritual drift. To lose the luster of our wonderful Lord Jesus who keeps us from being stoned to death outside the camp for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. It's a greater word. It is important, number three, to remember that God disciplines his children. God disciplines his children. We're careless about obedience. I mean, you got to be careful to think about, don't be superstitious. I remember... Janet's Uncle John is famous for telling me stories about all the things that happened to him bad because he bailed hay on Sunday. I'm not talking about that. Oh, he believed it. He can tell you all the tractors that blew up and how many barns burned down and how many cows died because he bailed hay on Sunday. You know, God's not up there looking to just kind of make you into a grease spot when you sin. But as we drift away from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ, We remove ourselves from the umbrella of the blessing of God and we wonder why things are the way they are and it's because God is chastening us to bring us back to this great salvation. It is a great salvation, isn't it, number four? So why would we ever become careless or complacent? Why would we ever get tired of thinking about Jesus and his word? It's a reminder, isn't it? And there's a question. And there's a challenge, and I trust you'll take it to heart. Let's stand and let's close in prayer before we go home. So, Father, we're thankful for your word. And the writer of the Hebrews so skillfully crafted this in such a way to lift up the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as superior to that given to Moses by the angels, confirmed by the eyewitnesses, amplified and given credibility through signs and wonders and miracles in that special time in the early church. Thank you for the preservation of the word in our hands today and that we have an accurate word. Father, would you help us to not let this word go in one ear and out the other? Father, would you wake us up to spiritual drift, allowing ourselves to look more like the world than like Christ? And we don't even know when that happened. It just kind of happened. Forgive us, draw us back to yourself. Renew in us the awe of our wonderful Lord Jesus, who is superior to the angels. It's in his name we pray and commit ourselves for another week. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go.